0: South Hills, last week we wrapped up our series called Safe Distance. Throughout the month of January, we talked about why we are afraid to get close to others and building lasting connection. We looked at three different insecure spiritual attachment styles, sensitive, shut down, and shifty, and learned how our early relationships in life impact our relationships with God and with others. While our goal is to keep growing and moving in a secure attachment style, it was helpful to realize we all struggle with insecurities. The important thing is to continue taking steps toward being confident, connected, and comfortable in our relationships. This month, we are kicking off a new series called First Comes Love. As you might have guessed, we are still talking about relationships, but this time we're looking at what God has to say about sex, marriage, kids, and even more. John chapter 13, 34 and 35 tells us, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our world has a lot to say about love, primarily that we should look out for number one. God's perspective is patient, long-lasting, sacrificial, and completely countercultural So I hope you'll join us over the next few weeks and invite a friend as we look at what love really means.
1: Man, my name is Chris, and uh, welcome to South Hills Costa Mesa. Thank you guys for being here today. Uh, I bet you didn't know that that song could be so emotional, right? I mean, it's just like a little bit of a fun, silly uh song when you hear it on the radio or when you play it uh in your car. Uh, But uh, there's just some lyrics there that just hit home on a different level. So I'm excited for the next few weeks. We've got some. Very fun and very special surprises happening with our song choices, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, We are starting a brand new series, just like our senior pastor said, Uh, a brand new series is beginning today, and we are going to start it off by talking about sex. So fun. Uh, And so it's one of these topics that, you know, for probably most of you guys on your way to church this morning, you're like... It probably wasn't on your, your short list of what you think they're going to talk about today. So, uh, And and I just want to acknowledge from the beginning that uh, it's a little bit awkward, right? Thank you, Ez. That's weird. My wife said it's awkward. So, uh, no, but it's just, you know, it's one of these things that uh, it feels odd to talk about at church, and it's maybe not often talked about at church. Uh, sometimes uh, our experiences with this being taught about by pastors, preachers, whatever it is, spiritual leaders, has really been... Kind of heavy-handed and shaming and almost kind of used as like a weapon of sorts. And, and so I want to try my best to acknowledge that and navigate this conversation. But the reality is, is that for us to talk about healthy relationships, dating, marriage, uh, and everything in between, we also have to talk about this. The same way we talk about a lot of different components in our lives. We talk about not only God's grace and forgiveness and love, but we also talk about what does it look like for us to handle our finances in a healthy way? How do we pursue emotional health and recognize the spiritual implications of that? And so, all of these things overlap, uh, but it doesn't necessarily make it less awkward. So, let's just all say "sex" out loud together on the count of three. One, three: one, two, three. Sex. Thank you, Wes. So excited to get that out of the way. Uh, so it's just you know it's okay. We can we can talk about this, uh, and we can have uh, uh, we can have just a A heck of a time together. So I was thinking about it, and uh, just the idea of what I want to talk about today, I remember this uh, post I had seen on Instagram a few weeks ago, and I thought it was really funny. I want to share it with you guys. Going to bed early, not leaving my house, not going to a party, my childhood punishments have become my adult goals. How many of you guys over the last few weeks have had uh, plans be canceled, and you were just like, yes. (laughs) Uh, we sometimes like secretly, uh, talk about how early we went to sleep, you know, during the weeks, like, Oh my gosh, I went to bed at eight o'clock. It was so great. You know, all of these things that as we kind of get older, we just realize, like, man, this is really what I want. This is how I want to spend my time. And, and kids would think that it's insane. Uh, kids, I think idealize growing up because being an adult means freedom. It means you can do whatever you want. You can eat whatever you want. You can spend money on whatever you want. And then as we become adults, you realize... Well, apparently I have to sleep, and dairy has betrayed me, Uh, and you know, there's all of these different components of trying to figure out uh, how do I enjoy life and enjoy all of the good things in life, but also recognize that there's certain things that I have to handle a certain way, and and there's certain boundaries that are actually good boundaries, and they they actually create joy and goodness. It's not just limitation, and so I want to talk about sex in kind of two different ways, Uh, and... I don't have, uh, let me just say this from from the get-go, I don't really have the time nor the expertise to give like a full actual picture of what this looks like in a healthy way. I want to talk about it, kind of uh, give some glimpses and understandings of three different ways that we can understand this in our lives regardless of our relationship status And I also want to invite you to not raise your hand or say anything right now, but I want to invite you because uh, as with many of the things that we talk about, uh, 30 minutes is not enough time four Sundays is not enough time. And we're not talking about, this is the only day we're talking about sex, just in case you're already planning on skipping next week. So, uh, or I guess if that was a selling point for next week, But, but it's not enough time. And again, like with any of the topics that we talk about, there are so many resources that we would love to help point you towards, whether it's books or reading, whether it's helping find a counselor or therapist, whether it's pastoral counseling, or uh, there's all kinds of different ways that we can help. And so I just want to say that out loud. It would be foolish of me to think, and I don't want you to think I am foolish, uh, that I could somehow wrap all of this up in one short message. And so I just want to say that kind of from the get-go. But the reality is, is that it's hard for us to decide what is good for me and what is bad for me. Especially when we're kids, but even as we get older, it takes a long time to learn how do we develop a healthy approach even to the good things? How do we find health even in good things? How do we understand what uh, boundaries and, and self-control looks like Self-control we said this before self-control is the only kind of control that we're actually supposed to have. The self-control is the only thing that the scriptures tell us that we should actually have control over ourselves and They don't say, hey, you should have this, and if you don't, you're a failure. Scripture tells us that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, which means that self-control is something that we experience when God is living in our lives. Self-control is only something that we can have when we allow the Holy Spirit to move and work inside of us. So we can't just, like, force ourselves to have self-control. It's something that only comes from being connected to God. And so there's this reality for us, and when we think about Uh, How do we control our own desires and our own impulses? How do we channel those in healthy ways? Uh, We have to also acknowledge that we're being bombarded by advertising that plays on every one of our desires and impulses, whether it's food or shopping or relationships, whatever it might be. And the job of advertising is to uh, highlight the benefits and suppress the negatives or the side effects. And everywhere we look, someone seems to either be selling us uh, sex or using the idea of sex to sell us something else. And it's a little bit interesting because I remember growing up in kind of a, a church culture where there was a lot of like true love waits and there was like this massive fear about the number of people that were having sex before marriage. And, and what studies have shown is that this number is actually drastically going down. Uh, which in a lot of ways is a really good thing. Uh, but there's also concerns that they have about it because it's not just that it's going down uh, in regards to teen or young adults having sex outside of marriage. It's actually going down kind of across the board, inside of marriages and everywhere. There's, there's these challenges that are starting to rise up that people are seeing, sociologists are, are seeing and tracking And it's interesting because as much as we talk about and feel some sort of freedom to acknowledge and talk about and and sell and portray this idea of sexuality, it feels like less people are experiencing it or experiencing the fullness and the goodness of it in their lives. Could it be that we are confused about what it is that makes sex special and meaningful and power, and we've been putting weight in the wrong things. So uh, it's it's sometimes a little bit, I feel like a a cheater when I do this because it's easy to talk in extremes, but I feel like a lot of times, especially in a church context, there are extremes. Um, And when it comes to the topic of sex, people tend to be either obsessed with it or repressed. There's kind of this... Total freedom and embrace, and I'm gonna talk about it and participate and view and read and celebrate it in all forms all the time. Or on the other side of the spectrum, there's like this deep kind of, we're not gonna talk about it, especially at church, uh, with my mom sitting in the front row. Uh, And uh, it's not okay, and it's a bad thing, and you should never think about it or want it until you're supposed to. And then all of a sudden, you should magically want it, and it should be great. Like, there's this really twisted kind of perspectives, and, and churches and pastors have really done a lot of harm and a lot of damage in that, and one of my primary goals today is just to not <laughs> cause any new harm. I just want to... <laughs> it's like, if I can get out of this without causing some more problems, I would love that. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, but there's this reality where there's this spectrum, and, and so people are either uh, way too obsessed, or they're way too repressed. And and neither of those extremes is really uh, the the ideal. Neither of them is really healthy or what we want to see in our lives. Sometimes churches or or people, they kind of articulate that sex either isn't a big deal, and oftentimes churches make it seem like it is the biggest deal ever. And this is the thing That will somehow, you you get this scarlet letter. You get this mark that you'll never be able to be free from. And I just want to say, I'll say it now, and I'll also say it at the end of my message. Shame is not of God. And people may put shame on you, and they may be called pastors or Christians or whatever it might be. It may be loved ones. It may be a grandparent or a parent or a cousin. But shame is not something that God intends for any of us to feel. Yes, we can make wrong choices. And the beauty is that there's already forgiveness available for that if we accept and acknowledge that. And so this idea of it becoming like the biggest deal ever uh, and somehow decimating your hope for a future, I think has caused a lot of damage. The church has oftentimes shamed women for having sex and shamed men for wanting sex and, and then somehow expected their uh, sex lives to become this beautiful, healthy, perfect picture after they get married, and and there was no real tools or resources or healthy way of approaching this conversation in the years leading up to it. So, what does a healthy view of sex look like? Well, I'm going to tell you exactly in less than 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not. I'm going to, but I do want to give some ideas and some guardrails. Not really guardrails. That's not the right word. I want to. I want to talk about this. And part of this, I think part of the validity of having this conversation is just you should be having this conversation. If this is the first time that you've had a conversation about sex, and it's not going to be like a conversation, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you (laughs) questions. But if this is like the first time ever or the first time in a long time, like you should probably be having more conversations about this. But it is important. It is beautiful, and it is something that the scriptures tell us a lot about. And so I want to I talk about these types of things. And, and it begins in Genesis where so much begins. When sex enters the human story, it is this beautiful and positive thing. One author said that we were sexual long before we were sinful. So there's no shame in this reality, in this act. And in fact, it's the first thing that God tells Adam and Eve to do. It's in biblical language. And he says this phrase, be fruitful and multiply, which has got to be the least sexy way to invite that kind of conversation. But but this is what it's addressing, and this is what it's talking about. And what I think is interesting, and uh, I've had some conversations with our older son about this. He started to ask some questions, and, you know, is it kind of like Legos, where like a baby comes out, and you put them together? That's an exact quote. Uh, you can't tell him that I said that. I probably shouldn't have said that, but... Um, but what's interesting about this is is you look through all of creation uh, and all of the way that people or, or creatures reproduce. I mean, there's a lot of ways that this could happen. And some, I mean, God could have done this any way he wanted. We could have, you know, we could lay eggs. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what, a, what a delight that would be. It's interesting to me, uh, and I don't know, this, I think it... it Moves into a lot of other categories. When I think about um, when I think about food, we need to eat and we need to drink to be able to feed and care for our bodies, to provide nourishment for our bodies. We don't actually need to be able to taste for our bodies to be nourished, but God gives us the ability to taste things, and it's wonderful. You guys have had pepperoni pizza, right? Like, it's, it's incredible. God gives us this ability. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way, but there's something at the very core of how he designed us where he wanted us to experience goodness at every level, and the same thing shows up in sexuality. It could have been designed many different ways, but there is this intentionality in how God wants us to experience the goodness, and it shows up all throughout Scripture's that God is a God that wants us to experience goodness. There's a a lot of poetry in the scripture. And I want to look at one just because sometimes we um, we assume that this is kind of like a, a weird or kind of shamed or topic that's not really addressed much in scripture. But there's a book called Song of Solomon that's full of poetry that uh, in some ways feels silly and maybe like G-rated to us. But at the time, this was like very erotic poetry and so i think it would be great for us to read that here together so uh song of solomon chapter four uh the first line is like the best and then it gets really weird uh so how beautiful you are my darling how beautiful you are your eyes are like doves behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats <laughs> that have descended from mount gilead just long flowing hair it's great uh Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their watering place. They're white. You have white teeth. Like this is being celebrated. All of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Another translation (laughs) makes it a bit more clear, and it says, Each of your teeth has its matching pair. So it's like, not only are they white, but they're all there. This is romance. There is hope for all of us. It goes on. It says, your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones which are hung, a thousand shields, all the round shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. And for my own sake, I'm not going to read more, but it just keeps going. Down, like it's just a downward description of every body part. So, uh, but this didn't accidentally end up in scripture. And God is not surprised that this is in scripture. There is beauty and intentionality in the way we are supposed to understand this aspect of our humanity, of who we have been created to be. But again, if something's good, we have this thought or this assumption oftentimes, then uh, I don't know that I, I need boundaries. It would be even better without boundaries. Um, I should be able to explore this at my own preference and my own, to, to my own desires. And we're not the first people to think this way. Um, there's a lot of different cultures and history that have a lot of different kind of perspectives and, and views on this idea of sexuality. And um, most of the New Testament was written by a man named Paul. And Paul uh, spent the first half of his life uh, as a very good Jewish man who was trying to destroy and kill Christians. And he spent the second half of his life, after he had this experience of, of believing in who Jesus was and, and changing his life, he spent the second half of it actually planting churches, and being persecuted and stoned and beaten up, uh, beaten up, much the way he was doing to others. And so Paul is going out from Israel, kind of going out from the people that had heard about the message of Jesus. And he's starting these new churches in new cities and in new cultures. And all of a sudden, there's all of these differences. So it wasn't just a Jewish perspective now opening up to this idea of who Jesus is as the Messiah, the Son of God, but it was these other religions and these other perspectives that's trying to understand, well, how do we take our faith and our past and our history, and how do we blend it together with what Jesus has called us to do or how Jesus has called us to live? In the Greco-Roman culture... Um, is where uh, Paul planted some of the very first Christian churches, one of them in a city that was well-known for its temple that was built to honor Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and sexuality. This temple, people would go and worship at this temple because it was a good thing. And why wouldn't you worship a good thing? And at this temple, part of the process, and it's, um, it feels so bizarre to think about, To me, at least, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's not to you guys. Uh, But part of the process of going to this temple is this temple would be stacked with uh, a lot of historical documents say it was around 1,000 prostitutes. And so to worship at this temple would be to go and sleep with a prostitute. And this was the way that you would worship. It's a little bit different than what we do at South Hills. (laughs) But at the time, this was the perspective. And it wasn't seen as this, like, dirty or wrong thing, it was seen as this, well, this is a beautiful thing, and so why wouldn't we worship it? Why wouldn't we embrace all of the goodness and the pleasure that we want to experience? And so Paul is trying to address some of these ideas. Another city that Paul planted in was a city called Athens, which is kind of known as the birthplace of dualism, which is the idea that there's a a spiritual world and a physical world, and they're very separate, And actually, this idea of dualism actually uh, is really prevalent still in this day. I don't know if you've ever thought this idea, or maybe you've heard people say this idea, but I've heard it a lot in churches, especially growing up, this idea. The world is falling apart, and I, I know I'm going to heaven, and I just wish that Jesus would come back so I can get there now. This is deeply formed by the idea of dualism, this idea that there is an earthly, physical world, And there's a spiritual reality, and I just want to get there. I want to leave this and just get there. And that's not what Jesus talked about at all. That's not what the scriptures talk about at all. They talk about this blended aspect that everything has this spiritual component to it. But people in Athens, they really believed, well, the body is just the body. I can be as spiritual as I want, and I can do whatever I want physically, whether it's sex or other things, because it has no effect on my spiritual life. And Paul is talking to them trying to help them understand that this is not actually true. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, "Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ? Shall I then take away the parts of Christ and make them parts of a prostitute far from it?" And again, I read this verse you know, growing up, when I was high school, college, all kinds of times before I realized, like, it feels like this whole prostitute thing feels like a real, like, right turn. Like, why are we just talking about it? But this was a common, understood, totally accepted process and practice. He says, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Paul's trying to get them to understand this idea that it's not separate. It's connected. There's connection between these things. It's not a separate physical and a separate spiritual, but God has intended us to be these whole humans fully experiencing, not just physical or spiritual, but both at the same time. They impact each other And I think that we can kind of intuitively understand this, because if sex were just physical, then there would not be as much emotion, there would not be as much pain or regret, there would not be as much uh, uh, negative impact from the unhealthy encounters that we've had, from abuse or from uh, whatever it may be. We understand that there is this bigger impact that shows up. It's so much more than just a physical thing. But what's interesting for me is when Paul says uh, in his letter, he says, for he says the two shall become one flesh. The he that he's talking about there is Jesus. And he's, he's referring back to in our gospel, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking about marriage and about this idea. And Jesus says the same phrase, the two shall become one flesh. This is the same phrase that's uh, read in Genesis, they became one flesh, and it's tempting for us in this moment to think about it's like this. Just a, it's just a sexual thing, but it's actually so much more than that. Um, there is this beauty with this with this word. the The Hebrew word is the word ikad Can you guys say ikad Great job. Um, And this word ekad, it's what's translated as one. Uh, And and this word shows up in a lot of different ways. But one of the primary places that it would have shown up, especially when Jesus was talking, that everybody would have recognized this word, is that there was this prayer that Jewish people would pray twice a day, every single day. It's called the Shema. And it's from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this prayer says, hear, Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And that word one, if you can believe it, the, it's English. One is English. But in Hebrew, the word is ekad. It's the same word that is used to describe Adam and Eve becoming one. It's the same word that's used to describe uh, two becoming one. It's the same word that the Spice Girls, did. they didn't want to sing in Hebrew. They wanted to sing in English. But... But this idea of two becoming one, and what I think is so beautiful and power is what they're referring to in this prayer, what Jesus is kind of calling back to is he's teaching about the importance and the value and the beauty of sex, is he is drawing a very specific line to the unity that God has in himself, Father, Son, Spirit, this mystical, powerful oneness that is God, that is the divine, that is love, we get a picture of that in human relationships. It's not just physical. There's a dotted line specifically to the creator of the universe and what we experience here. It is a beautiful thing. Something powerful happens when two humans become eCAD, become one. They know each other. And this can't be undone. Now, like I said, it can sound a little bit mystical, uh, but there's a lot that we have learned about brain chemistry. And obviously, this is not my profession, so uh, I only know portions of this. But it's, it's fascinating because they have found scientifically that there is so much oneness that happens. There's so much bonding that happens during sex. There's different uh, things that are released in our brains. Dopamine is something that we experience in a lot of different ways What's uh, what makes us feel good when we do something exciting or, or uh, fun, and, and this is referred to oftentimes as the addiction chemical, and it's something that our brains are flooded with during sex, this, this kind of desire to continue experiencing this thing. Oxytocin is a chemical that they found as a bonding chemical primarily found in women's brains released by physical touch. Uh, Vasopressin is this bonding chemical found primarily in men. Uh, Again, during sex, there's these scientific aspects of what we already believe to be true. And it's just being kind of affirmed or, or reaffirmed as there is this deep oneness that begins to happen. And it really is not only a beautiful thing, but it is a weighty and a meaningful thing. God created this to be something that would bond us together emotionally and relationally and it's something for us to take in a very weighty way to understand the implications of this not to be obsessed or to minimize it and also not to be repressed or to demonize it but to understand the intention the beauty and the weight of this a lot, a lot of times in scripture, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of verses that talk about uh, this idea of sexuality, uh, who we have it with, when we have it, uh, without thought, etc. First Corinthians, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And that you are not your own, for you've been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, one of the things that would be incredibly convenient is if there was always like a very clear list of do this and don't do that. And sometimes we get those things. But when it comes to sexuality, there's not really a very specific list. Uh, I was a college pastor for a long time, and that was one of the most common questions that I would get is like this question of, well, how much can I do and still be okay? Like, where is the line specifically? And I get the, the drive of that question because it's a sense of, well, I love God and I want to do things the right way, but also, you know, uh, and so where is the line? And very frustratingly, there isn't really a line. This word that's used in this First Corinthians passage, chapter 6, is this term "porneus," this Greek word, and, and it really becomes like a bucket, To talk about sexual immorality. And there's a lot of people that have made a lot of money and made a lot of to do about creating very specific lines. But I think that what is actually more powerful is not saying, don't do these X things. It's actually saying, well, how are you pursuing holiness? Or how are you pursuing becoming the person that God wants you to become? Or becoming the person that you want to become? Instead of just trying to avoid stepping in something that you're not supposed to be in, what does it look like to actually pursue goodness and a full, beauty-filled life? It's used as this kind of catch-all for this activity. And it's because he's constantly reiterating that sex is about more than just the physical act. It is more important and it is more weighty And there were so many people at that time that didn't understand or believe that. And I think on some level, there's so many people still that don't understand that. And it's not about people that are single not understanding it. It's also about people that are married not understanding it. It's not just one or the other. And it's important that we understand this because, like I said in the beginning, and again, this is... A really big topic that I just, I I feel like we need to address and I don't have the the time for all of it, but it's not just that sexual promiscuity is down in teenagers, it's actually down in married couples also, Well, not promiscuity, but sexual uh, sex, the the amount that people are having sex, this number is down, it should be down uh, promiscuity, but anyways, it's a whole different thing, so, um, but the reality is that there's concerns about this. And the reality that it's not just something that I've read, it's actually the more and more conversations that I have with other guys. There's there's a challenge that people are experiencing in their relationship of not understanding the intention and the goodness and the importance of sex in a relationship, of not prioritizing it in the right way, of feeling like it's something that can just kind of be set aside if it's not easy or convenient are always happening exactly the way that we want it to be happening. It can almost be dismissed or diminished. But Paul, again, shows up and he talks about this in a very specific way. 1 uh, <laughs> Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he says, uh, he's talking to husbands and wives here in the beginning of chapter 7, then he says, Stop depriving one another, talking about sex, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's essentially saying, if you are married, and he does in these first few verses, he says you belong to each other, care for each other. This should be a priority for you consistently. The only time that you should not be having sex is when you're praying. <laughs> so, you know, I guess get to praying, or I don't, I don't know. But there's like this, this value, this weight, this clarity of saying this is a crucial aspect of your relationship. And if you don't pay attention to it, there's, there's a, a risk of what could happen because of our lack of self-control, because of our brokenness, because of Satan's attempt to somehow get into and cause cracks and fractures in every relationship he can in any way that he can. This is something that needs to be prioritized but it's a difficult thing. Oftentimes, we can feel like there's something off or like we're just not on the same page or whatever it might be. And and I think that it's natural to feel out of sync from time to time with your partner, with your spouse. It's natural to feel that. It's not wrong to feel that. But it is dangerous to just let that go, to just let that be, oh, well, I guess this is just what it is. I guess this is just what we've signed up for. It's dangerous to just let that go. Paul wants us to understand and what we've seen over and over again and what professionals have articulated is the importance that sex plays as a regular part of couples lives It should be highly valued and it should be a weighty thing. And it's not just physical. It actually has to do with the ecad or the oneness that a couple experiences. Um, I'm going to make a real right turn here. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, and we had a lot of land and a little bit of money. So we had a push mower, um, and push mowers back in the day aren't, there's like Roomba push mowers now, or they're not even pushed, they're just like electronic lawn mowers, which is an incredible thing. Um, But I remember this push mower, and this thing was a beast, and um, it was old and beat up, and we had like, you know, a ton of property that was all covered in grass. And I just remember, like, trying to pull this thing to get it started. Does anybody remember what that was like? Just, like, it's brutal, especially as a kid. You're, like, yanking on this thing, trying to get it going. And um, I remember my dad was uh, fairly handy, and he just fixed a lot of things on his own. And, and I remember watching him, and the reason why I remember this story is because uh, well, I, I remember watching him, like, change the spark plug in this lawnmower. And then after you change the spark plug, you pull it once, and it just started up just like that. And I remember the story because about six months ago, uh, I was having issues with my golf cart, uh, and I got a new spark plug, and Mason was like, "How do you know how to do this?" Because <laughs> obviously I don't do anything mechanical ever. So he had a lot of questions like, "Well, why should you trust your ability to do this?" And <laughs> anyways, but this, this reality of this, this spark makes everything else easier. And there's this course that we do. We actually just started it last week. It's called the Marriage Course. And uh, if you would like to join, I will make space for you. I will find a way for you to join. It's not too late because it's such a great thing for anyone that's in a serious relationship or married. It's, It's such a great course. But they talk about how crucial it is to keep this spark alive, which is a common term, inside of marriages, and I just want to give like a very practical thing before I I wrap up here, but just a very practical thing. They talk about five ways to keep the spark alive, and again, this is something that's so crucial, because sex is intended to be this beautiful part of not just our physical lives, but our spiritual lives, and this oneness that happens. It's meant to be important, and weighty, and, and filled with hope, and we should continue to pursue this and pursue health in this area. So these five things, the first one is uh, speaking. And they talk about how it's difficult to talk about sex and how for many people uh, that it's actually harder to talk about it than it is to actually do it. It's like it's, it's much less comfortable to just do it and not have to actually share my thoughts or fears or concerns or any of those types of things. But they talk about how important it is for couples to have conversations around this. How important it is for pastors to talk about it and make everyone uncomfortable. Uh, how important it is for us to say, "Hey, this is something that we should talk about. This is something that that you should talk about with your partner. Um, the second thing is prioritizing, and they say this quote they say "Sex isn't the icing on the cake of marriage it's an incent- it's an essential ingredient of the cake itself." It's not just this, like, nice to, but it's actually a a have to. It's a crucial aspect of closeness and connection. The third one is anticipating, and, and they talk about this as the idea of romance. And they say that romance can be flowers and chocolate, but more often it's actually things like taking out the trash, or doing the dishes, or just caring for each other. Uh, it can be sending text messages. It can be writing notes for each other. It can be all kinds of different things. There's a lot of different ways we can build anticipation in this way. The fourth one is the way that we respond to others, to our partners. That Oftentimes, they say sex starts as a decision, and then desire follows, and they talk about the way that we respond in positive ways, that how it can build confidence and trust and safety and security. And, and then the fifth one is kindness. And it, it feels obvious, but are we being kind to each other? Are we being kind to our partner? Or we being encouraging and speaking in love and building them up and telling them uh, all of the amazing things about them? Or maybe you can only find one amazing thing about them and just say that one every day. Like it doesn't have to be that they're the perfect person. But are we being kind intentionally and speaking life into? And so they talk about, for couples specifically, they talk about, man, if, if you're feeling like there is a gap, if you're feeling like there is this deficit or this separation in your relationship when it comes to sexual intimacy, the, 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 the desire to pursue just some basic things can begin here. Maybe there are bigger conversations that need to be had. Like I said, I, I can't touch on every single aspect of this reality but there's resources available. And as a church, it's important for me that we are all pursuing health in every aspect of our lives because I want us to be a healthy community. It's important that uh, we are pursuing this because we have, we have kids who are watching us and observing our marriages. We have people in our community. We get to encourage and, and, and cheer each other on in different ways. And so um, as much as I can, I, I want to make sure that you guys know I want to be able to resource you And your relationships as much as I can. So, in closing, um, what we have talked about here is the beauty, the weight, and the hope that exists inside of sexuality as God intended for it to be. And I think that there's a question that I've heard talked about in relation to um, discipleship as a whole being formed into the people that we want to be, and I think it actually really applies as well to this conversation around sexuality. And this question is, who am I becoming by what I am doing? Who am I becoming by what I'm doing? And I just want to, like, pause for a second. This question can be asked in any aspect of our lives. We can say, uh, I want to be healthy but am I making choices to become physically healthy? The doctor can say, hey, your cholesterol needs to come down, and I have to make choices to see that change happen. Pastor Alec, our student's pastor, is running a marathon today. Yes, I think he's still alive. But he didn't just go run a marathon. He started running a few months ago a little bit every day so that today he would be able to run a marathon. So this question, who am I becoming by what I am doing, what is it? What it does is it puts the responsibility on my decisions today to say, hey, if I want something down the road, I can actually start working towards that and achieving it today versus just saying, well, I hope I can make it through a marathon. Or maybe if I cross my fingers or pray real hard, my cholesterol will come down before my next physical. Or in our relationships, it can say, well, what am I doing today to pour into my marriage and to build intimacy and closeness so that I can experience health and goodness in the future? It might be difficult and challenging today, but how do I prioritize it? Or if I don't do anything today to prioritize it, what will my marriage look like in five years or 10 years or 20 years? If we're single or if we're dating, if we've somehow um, um, under-prioritized, that's not the word I'm looking for, If we're more on like the obsessed or kind of like the minimize the weight or the importance end of the spectrum, what are the decisions that we're making today? What do they shape about what we believe to be true and who we want to be moving forward? Is sexuality being elevated as the beautiful and weighty thing that God intended for it to be? Or is it being minimized as it's something good, it's something that I want regardless of boundaries or impact? The boundaries that God gives us are never because he doesn't want us to experience goodness, but they're because he wants us to experience full lives, a full life. That's what Jesus said in John 10, 10 I've come so that you can experience life and life to the full. And we experience that by making choices today that reflect what we believe to be true I think that all that to say, what a weird topic. (laughs) All that to say, uh, what a challenging topic. All that to say, this is something that is difficult to talk about in a one-on-one conversation. It's difficult to talk about with a counselor or a therapist. It does not mean that we should let ourselves off the hook from talking about it. For prioritizing it, from saying, hey, this is an important aspect of humanity and who I've been created to be. And I want to do the hard work to experience the goodness, not only for myself, but for the people that I love, for my partner, for my spouse, for uh, my family, and the generations that are going to come afterwards. I want to cultivate and build a healthy relationship, a holistic perspective of spirituality and the way that it intersects with our humanity. I also want to say that shame, as I said earlier, is not something that God intends for any of us to feel. And there's times that in a thousand different ways, we've made a thousand poor choices in lives, this topic or otherwise. And there's always forgiveness and grace. There's always forgiveness and grace. And it's an invitation for us to reassess and adjust our lives what we're prioritizing and the choices that we're making. And so I just, I want to say that out loud because I don't want anyone to hear any of these scriptures or any of these ideas and feel like somehow there's like, oh, here comes more like heaping of guilt or shame or anything like that. That's not what this is about. It's about saying, what are the choices that I'm making today? And how is it helping me become who I want to become or who God's called me to be? Let's pray together. <laughs> Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized, or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa, and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.